Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm here today with Adam Molyneux-Berry, who is an integral leadership coach and the founder of the Integral Impact Institute, which is a systems change organization. I met Adam in my green room that's run by Catherine Bell and Russ Hudson, and he's shared so many interesting insights, and I just really wanted to bring him on today so that he could share with listeners some of the exciting work that he's doing. And I know that you've had a pretty long history working with many different organizations. Adam, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you've been and where you're at now and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. It's uh, lovely to be here with you, Cara. Thanks for the invite. That is a really big question. I have, <laughs> feel like I've lived many lives, uh, many, many lives. I would say, so what would be relevant here? First thing is I was born into a very entrepreneurial family. So I, my first business was at the age of 13, selling cakes in the local park. Uh, learned a ton about supply and demand, and also about the cost of labor, which was my grandmom at the time, uh, baking cakes and cookies. <laughs> um, so, so that was the kind of environment that I, I grew up in, and very also very nomadic. My my mom, um, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, she was Egyptian, um, but living in the UK, so kind of more British than the British in many ways. And my dad uh, is is very British, like very old school British. So kind of multicultural family, I grew up, you know, understanding that you can see the world in many different ways and that they're all correct. And also I was kind of uh, socialized to be very mobile, kind of very nomadic. So I bring that up to say that I've lived all over the place. Um, so I've lived most recently I'm in the US at the moment. Before that, I was in the Netherlands. Before that, I was in Egypt. Before that, I was in Dubai. Before that, I was in uh Japan. And you're a point seven, right? Yes. You lead with point seven. Yes. And what's your instinctual step? Absolutely. Do you know? Do you have you do you identify yeah. with a step? It is uh-huh. It's sexual, social, um, self-press. Self-press way down on the list there. Okay. So um, yeah, sexual seven. We had one other sexual seven. We had Ingrid on. Are you familiar with Ingrid from the Enneagram community? Yeah, she does sound very familiar. I must have bumped into her. She in, does trauma-informed in Enneagram work. And she's beautiful, in South Africa. Beautiful. And yeah, it was really oh, fun cool. to have a conversation with a, a, and she's also sexual, social, self-pressed blind. So it'll be very oh, fun press. to kind mm -hmm. of hear your stories and how that's matching yes. up. So I'm just imagining how creative and fun it must have been to have visited all these different cultures and have had all of these different experiences and the many, many different businesses that you've had over your career. If you were to highlight like say the two that you want to talk about right now that you're particularly interested in that's kind of led you to where you are now. Let's go ahead and just start there. Okay, yeah, that's a fun question. So I'll start with Japan. Um, that was for me a rite of passage in many ways. You know, I went there without speaking the language, um, without knowing anyone and lived there for three years. I got to study martial arts with a grandmaster, which was- How just... old were you then? 20, I don't know, five, 24, something like okay. that. Okay. And how old are you now? In that range. 
40, I have to think about that, 45. <laughs> okay. So it's fun to just see yeah, where yeah. you are on your life trajectory. So I guess you could say oh, midlife yeah. is what's upon you at this moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And in, in true seven, in true seven fashion, back in Japan, I was studying martial arts. I was teaching, I was consulting, and I also had a, a couple of bands and they did very well. So I, I, I can safely say that my band was big in Japan, um, which mm. is the t-shirt. Fun. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And that, that really helped me see that I can go somewhere and, and do something and come back feeling like I, I didn't have a safety net. I, I was able to do it on my own. It was really empowering. That's awesome. And then the next stop I'll say is Egypt. So I moved from Japan to Egypt just before the Arab Spring, the revolution. And so uh, that really activated me as a change maker. So a lot of the organizations I'd built before were businesses, they had some social angle, but this was the first time that I witnessed self-organization to the level of millions of people. Um, mm. This is the first time I was in the middle of three revolutions back to back. And uh, it just woke me up. I immediately was activated. And it was the question for me was, how do we support this country going through this incredible experience? Mm. Um, so very quickly, I built uh, a, an agricultural project to support rural communities and farming communities. Um, I founded that with a bunch of friends. And then a year later, I, I co-founded a technology innovation hub focused on solving urban challenges, um, you know, building, literally building solutions with 3D printers and stuff like that to local challenges and then taking them to market. And that launched, that organization launched about 600 um, small organizations, SMEs led by Egyptian youth in the green economy. And then a year later, did another hub, and then a year later, uh, kind of founded the parent organization. And so it was just this period of kind of, it was very seven, you know, this period of multiple communities, multiple countries in the middle of a revolution. You know, the problem at the end of the day was, how do we get all these people back home without them getting shot or, you know, hit by tanks or snipers? I mean, it was really, in the, we were right in the middle of the action. And that just com completely cemented my identity as uh, a change maker. Yeah. So and those could, are the two countries I would say that influenced me the most. Okay. Yeah. And I can hear how a lot of charge there, like that dump sexual instinctual mm -hmm. energy being dominant, it just kind of drew you into these intense situations. Whereas a seven with an eight wing that's sexual dominant, it's easy to see how an environment that might be overwhelming for some people would actually be something that just you could lock right into and really fired you up and got you super engaged and excited. Yeah. And also the low self-prize was a real benefit at that point, because obviously I was willing to take risks that other people weren't. And, it, and that was to some extent needed at the time mm -hmm. and fell prey to the, the kind of eight the kind of leading from in front. I know what I'm doing. Follow me. Um, kind of hero partnership. Definitely you evidently fell, did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and, you knew and not something power. I would ever do again, Cara. Uh -huh. Yeah, but not why, something I would not? ever do again. Because, why wouldn't you do it again? Well, I, I was too visible in front of too many young people. And I think mm -hmm. that part of the the narrative that the that the eight in me has to be very careful around is leading from in front, heropreneur, because it's very dangerous in at systemic level to, to kind of behave like that. The cost is real. Like, I'm amazed no one died on my watch. It was very, very, very likely to happen. There, wow. there were times where it was just a pane of glass separating a full-on riot with tear gas and snipers and tanks from a workshop on how to build biogas digesters or solar systems, you know? 
Um, so it was reckless. I mean, it was needed. I'm happy that it happened. I just would never do it that way again. Well, and it sounds like that defense mechanism of denial in point eight was serving you at that point because you just weren't connecting with it. Yeah. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about Myers-Briggs. Is it okay if I highlight Mm -hmm. how your Myers-Briggs type also feeds into your narrative? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So you were sharing that you were not sure if you were an ENTJ or an ENFJ. These were the two types that Mm -hmm. you were remembering and you were saying, I think I was an ENTJ and now I'm more like an ENFJ. And I was just offering a little bit of insight into how we're working with Myers-Briggs when we're using it for personal growth, just how when we're using the Enneagram for personal growth, it becomes a slightly more in-depth tool than when you're just using it to describe a few personality characteristics. And with the ENTJ, which I now strongly believe you are, the reason Mm -hmm. that, and that doesn't mean that because you're a thinker that you can't also feel, it's sort of like Mm -hmm. the Enneagram. We have all of the energies inside of us. It's just some of them we lead with out in front and some of them are Mm -hmm. more in the shadow and we have to develop them. And part of our growth Mm -hmm. comes in reclaiming these energies that we leave behind and that are in the unconscious or in the shadow for some reason. So with Mm Myers-Briggs, when you're an ENTJ, your lead function is extroverted thinking, which we nickname um, effectiveness. So it's about like Mm -hmm. getting things done. It's like, I see that this needs to happen and I will lead this charge to make sure that it happens. And the auxiliary function or the co-pilot is introverted intuition. So there's this very sixth sense about things. So I would think Mm -hmm. that those assertive energies of seven and eight definitely lead you to have that eight instinctual knowing sense of probably about safety that even though you're saying it was reckless, nobody got harmed on your watch. There was a part Mm -hmm. of you that probably was aware of which edges you could push and exactly how far you could go. And Mm -hmm. that's all intuitive and it's all happening internally. And until we bring like that consciousness to it, you don't even realize that you're just like wired to do that kind of thing. That's actually your superpower. And the ENTJs Mm -hmm. on this planet are the people that really drive through these big changes. Like they are Mm -hmm. all about effectiveness. They will take you from A to B to C to D all the way to Z. And, you know, it Mm -hmm. actually tends to happen. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to share that hearing your story an ENFJ is actually not as good at execution in terms of logistics as some, as an ENTJ would be. An ENFJ, mm-hmm. though, is a good leader of people. They kind of got the pulse on what's going on with all of the humans. So, you know, I'm sure that there's this piece of you that is very good at leading organizations and people and driving these changes. But when we think of the seven with the eight wing, I would say one of the shadow elements is that they need to work on becoming connected to the heart. That also as a point three, Mm. that all of us as assertive types, we tend to bypass the heart. And on our growth Mm -hmm. journey, we actually have to learn how to bring feeling online. So it was really interesting because I initially mistyped as an ENFP and Mm -hmm. I'm actually an ENTP. And the reason I mistyped was because I'd been doing so much personal growth work, trying to open my heart as a three, 
that when I was answering all these questions, I was answering them like I was a feeler, but that's not actually my default. Mm -hmm. And my default is much more to go to logic, to systems. I'm also a thinker, mm -hmm. but I live more mm -hmm. in the realm of ideas as opposed to actually executing and getting things done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. you want your ENTJ to often be the CEO, whereas your ENTP tends to come in a little bit more as like a consultant because we can like mm -hmm. see it, mm -hmm. but if you put us in charge of it, we won't be as effective most likely. Mm. Gotcha. gotcha. And that doesn't mean we can't be, yeah. you know, yeah. We develop effectiveness and you guys mm -hmm. develop some of the other like extroverted intuition and introverted thinking mm -hmm. and these other processes that you bring online as you stop solely relying on what you were born with. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of listening to what you're saying, I, it, it brings up an interesting conversation for me um, that I've been having with James Flaherty. Who, yeah, um, tell me about it. Well, it connects to my enneotype as a seven. I was really confused if, if I was an eight or a seven. And, uh, you know, James and I explored it. Also, I brought it up with Russ a couple of times, Russ Hudson. And here is where we reached, which was PTSD. As a result of the Arab Spring, I came out of it fully traumatized. I mean, you know, fully, fully traumatized. And it actually reactivated a lot of childhood tra trauma, you know, pre-verbal, even some of it. Um, and so, you know, the question was, was I a seven or an eight before all the trauma kicked in fully? And definitely the answer is a seven. Mm. Um, the eight is much more of the kind of persona that kind of came out with, with adversity and in difficult circumstances. I had to grow up at a very young age. I grew up in an unfortunately quite a dysfunctional household and so kind of had to become an adult quite quickly and so the eight is kind of uh I would say a defender part that I often merge with very successfully but I hear what you're saying about the hidden intuition because when I think back about the work we did during the Arab Spring you know I had a makerspace that could make weapons we had you know computer controlled milling machines that could make weapons and I was right next to the heart of Tahrir Square, which is where all the action was happening in Egypt. And the reason that I was left alone was because intuitively I was reaching out to people that I would call enablers or ambassadors that would be the people that would provide political insulation. So it would be you know, the Minister of Agriculture or the Minister of uh, Trade or the Minister of Manufacturing. You know, And uh, it would basically be like, hey, come and see all these young people rebuilding the country and the region and support us. And then, of course, you'd get the obligatory visit by the secret police, which, of course, has to happen in the middle of all of that. And they are more curious than angry. Um, so, yeah, I'm really hearing you on that. And also, it's this question about trauma. You know, I'm really wondering if the trauma is the TF or if it's the 7-8. I'm really curious about that relationship. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, do you also follow tri-type? This is something that some of our people we've interviewed also identify with a, a tri-type or a tri-fix. How what it, would yours be? Yeah, I haven't delved into it too much. I kind of I've heard you know controversial um, both ways, you know, for the better, for uh, and for the worse. So I haven't delved into it much. It kind of makes sense to me. I do feel the different parts of me. Um, I tell you what, what I what I did discover in focusing, which is an amazing methodology. If if, if you haven't tried in relationship focusing, I cannot recommend it enough. It Tell is us the what deepest it is. way to connect to inner what knowing. Is, what is it? It's incredibly difficult to describe. It is <laughs> working with the felt sense. So definitely working with the felt sense. It is highly it meditative. It's, oh, it's, so it's not something we can do uh, in a podcast. Uh, I, it wouldn't require a bit of prep, but it is something we could do in a podcast. I just don't mm -hmm. know if you'd want, want to do it in a podcast because 
long story short, when you're focusing, you are working with your parts. So we are made up of a constellation of parts that are constantly in dynamic motion. So if you were to like try and find the part that is Adam, you wouldn't find it. Right. Um, you would just find all of these subpersonalities. You know, one of them is called the inner critic or the misguided helper. That's a very famous part. Um, it's doing its absolute best to protect us all the time. And it does that sometimes in a really misguided way. But the thing with parts work is that you have the part that wants to go to the gym. You've got the part that doesn't want to go to the gym. You have the part that has a judgment about the part that doesn't want to go to the gym. So there's this really lively um, you know, chorus of parts in us that are constantly guiding us. And with focusing, you actually get to address each of these parts. It's a bit like internal family systems, IFS. But um, with focusing, you're working with the felt sense. So I could ask you, what is it you want to run this focusing session on? You might say, I have a really difficult decision to make around work. And so we would explore that, but we'd explore through the felt sense, not through the head. It would be totally um, a body thing. And it would be you kind of going into yourself, asking the question, seeing what reacts. And then you'd say to me something like, my stomach is a bit tight. And I'm like, ah, so your stomach's a bit tight. And you'd be like, yeah. And I'm kind of getting an image of what it would be like in this new role. And it doesn't feel good. And we would explore that, that we would be exploring it through the body sensation and not through the, the kind of head. It's an amazing way of integrating left and right hemisphere um, because the left is, it thinks it's the dominant hemisphere, but actually it's the right hem hemisphere that's dominant. And the right is where the vagus nerve connects to the body. So in a sense, the right brain is the body. And so this is a beautiful left hemisphere, right hemisphere, body-mind um, integration uh, technique, which is really about inner knowing. Yeah, I love how I'm doing these interviews and I'm seeing so many intersections. I actually just finished a training to become a resonant healer with Sarah Payton. And so if you're interested, you might want to mm. listen to this episode. And resonant healing, there are nine different modalities that we use to basically attune and resonate with whatever part of ourselves happens to be arising. And then we actually even mm. time travel to when that part experienced trauma. And we have these different modalities Beautiful. that we use with that part. Mm. And we discover unconscious contracts that we make in mm. that moment to help us stay alive and to keep ourselves safe. And we can then examine those and then decide if we're going to, you know, still need to do some work because there's a lot of stuff coming mm. up around that agreement that we made with ourselves, or if we suddenly have this ability to release it, if it's something that we're ready to mm -hmm. let go of and just bring whatever wisdom that we want to bring with us from that, but leave the rest of it mm -hmm. in the past where it can now sort of be laid to rest. And it's Absolutely. once again, a very embodied process. It's really about mm -hmm. integrating left and right hemispheric information. So it's exciting mm -hmm. to, for me to hear that um, this is yet another modality for really bringing together individuation, integration. I, I heard this analogy mm -hmm. of, you know, we have this who we are, and it's like a puzzle with all of these committee members or all mm -hmm. of these parts or whatever it is that you, how you want to describe yeah, yeah. what is it that makes Adam or what is it that makes Kara. Mm -hmm. And so we can like look mm -hmm. at that and yet we could flip the puzzle over and there's like a whole other side that we're not always conscious of. And we can use mm -hmm. these domains so that our puzzle is no longer two-dimensional, but we can sort of create this very cool three-dimensional, true being. It's like really this way mm -hmm. of getting at the essence of who and what we are, as opposed to viewing ourselves 
in our fixation as our typology and really saying, oh no, that's just where we started because it made sense to start from there mm -hmm. because of our biology mm -hmm. and our context and our experiences. And now where do we grow from here? So it's really mm -hmm. beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and it works amazingly well with, I use it a lot in, in my leadership coaching. So I, I coach people in very large multinationals, um, whether they be for impact or not impact organizations and usually coaching them and I'll say something about eights. Eights often find that this is where their superpower is. So that kind mm -hmm. of instinctual knowing has been something that they've been accessing, but kind of haphazardly or randomly. And, you know, obviously with time, that becomes more of a habit for a lot of leaders. With focusing, you're basically cutting through all the noise and just getting straight into it. And so I find that, you know, sevens, eights, um, kind of a lot of their head or body types are fantastic. Fours are amazing at focusing. Um but yeah, I find it incredibly effective in coaching. And what I love about it is this is where the mystery begins. Because usually with coaching, when I'm coaching a senior leader, um, you know, a CEO or a C-suite, they're very cognitive. You know, they've had to be cognitive to get to where they are. So obviously I have to meet them with the neuroscience. So we talk a lot about the nervous system and polyvagal theory and neuroplasticity. And then you get to focusing, which was developed by Eugene Gendlin. It's a very well it's very science, very research-based, a lot of information out there for those interested. Um, usually when we start stepping into that space, um, that's where the mystery opens up. And you start to see that the leader is interested not just in better efficiency or better performance, but in exploring those areas that before they may have called, I don't know, claptrap or wishy-washy or um, woo-woo. Suddenly they start to realize that actually I might not be this linear cognitive human being. There might be more. To this and then you know as as we do in our work we start to integrate the cognitive intelligence in the head the emotional intelligence in the the chest area and then the body or the gut intelligence and the last thing i'll say about this is this is where the cutting edge research in medicine is and you probably know all about this car it's in the, the the brain gut connection the serotonin that's produced in the gut is in the vagus nerve and how our whole organism is we look at it from a very holistic lens and you start to really experience that when you dive into something like focusing. Um, and it, it works amazingly well for very cognitive leaders to start realizing that the three areas of the body that have by far the most neurons are the head, the chest area, and the belly. And that those are our three centers of intelligence and that we can work with them through these methodologies. So yeah, I still find it really exciting. And I love that aha moment when, when an eight um, or a seven switches on and they're like, holy moly, I have access to, to this feels like a superpower. So, yeah, mm. I'll, I'll leave it there. It really does. I mean, you can recognize that the answers I need are living in my heart or in my body. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting for me to recognize when my head has some thoughts that are resisting what's happening in the heart mm -hmm. and the body. How do you work with that mm -hmm. when you come across that? Yeah, it's very common. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that um, when we realize that we're not as in control as we would like to imagine, it, it's a whole, uh, it's a can of worms. I mean, for me, it was with trauma, like realizing that there's this thing I'm living with and it has it has me show up in many different ways and sometimes not very consciously. And uh, you find that in, in leaders too, that it can be terrifying to realize that, that I'm not in control and that there there is a relationship I need to form with myself to actually be able to move into the next level of leadership. It's Here's the analogy, right? It's like Star Wars, that, that scene in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker goes into the cave and has to fight himself. 
to emerge victorious. That, and that's it, right? We just we can only do this by going through who we are. And that's terrifying. It really is terrifying because all the assumptions we have, the worldview that we have, starts to crumble. And for me, the experience was like everything has lost its bones. It's um nothing has a solid shape anymore. It's all organic and flowing. And how the hell am I supposed to organize in this environment? You know, who am I in this environment? My God, who 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 am I in relation to others and also to myself? And you start to have, you know, my degrees in philosophy. So luckily I was forewarned and forearmed in having these big kind of existential questions. But yeah, you know, the answer for me, Kara, is just absolutely creating a safe container for my clients. You know, mm. not that any container is super safe, but you know, it's a brave space where they feel brave enough to answer those questions with with an empathetic presence um, holding space for them right that's really what we need and that's what Gendon talks about focusing the most important thing we can offer each other is presence everything else can, can come from that and by extension ourselves you know you were talking about these different parts what I've learned um, through the parts work and through all this kind of work we're doing together with the Enneagram as well is that not only am I a constellation of parts, I'm a constellation of enneotypes. I'm a constellation of all of these, all of these subpersonalities have a personality and they have a way, an orientation, a way of being. And my role is to just welcome them all in without any resistance, right? So the, even the part of me that doesn't want to go to the gym or the part of me that has a really strong judgment on that, both are welcome. And I bow to both and I honor them both. And I invite them both and I let them know that what they are feeling and doing is the most important thing for them. And I see that, but I'm here now. I don't have to do any of those things. I'm self in presence and here I am. And that work when you, when I do it with clients is a game changer because then suddenly the leader is no longer a victim or if only HR would do, I don't know what, or if only this co-leader with me would do X, it, none of, all of those stories start to lose their importance because we're no longer, um, you know, kind of the image, I'll put two fists against each other. The image is, you know, this, this kind of really pushing against each other softens to more of a, an opening, more of a kind of a space for possibility. And from there, creativity comes in. And of course, then everything starts to take on a life of its own, really. Mm, that's so beautiful. I'm really deeply resonating because I just went back to work after a seven-month sabbatical to launch some of the projects mm. that I'm doing. And stepping back into work has been a little bit like a stranger entering a strange land because it kind of feels mm. like there was Kara before I decided to take this seven months off and do a lot of inner work. And then there's like the me who's now entering this space that has undergone its own metamorphosis. And it's now like the coming back together. And it's asking like a lot of these questions and recognizing, you know, my team is small and there's definitely some breakdowns that have happened during this seven month window. And, you know, I just came from a staff meeting to this podcast interview and yeah, there's like big problems. And it was really interesting because I was able to just sit here with these women that I've worked with for like a decade or more and just really see that there was disconnection happening in the team. And I was so conscious of my typical point three structure, which would be like, think, do, think, do, like we've got to fix it. And mm -hmm. I ended the meeting and I just kind of sat there with my office manager and I'm like, yeah, just noticing I'm really sad. Like I just feel yeah. really sad that this is 
mm-hmm. where you know we are right now mm-hmm. and to just kind of even open to that and to not reject it as not okay mm-hmm. it's more like information that yeah we all can take in and we all can just allow to surface whatever's going to come and to really be leaning into the reality that things are changing, things are evolving, and that impermanence is really all we can count on. Yeah. Absolutely. Only thing that doesn't change is Mm. just, yeah. I totally hear you on that. And um, what an opportunity, you know, when when the dust settles and it's less painful, what an opportunity. You know, I, I, I fully have come to understand that my my wife my partner lou she holds a blueprint to my growth absolutely if i am triggered by her in any way if i'm reacting that's something in me that needs to be looked at yeah and so i might not um kind of get there straight away but at some point i get to see the gold right i get to really dig down to the gold and um you know, my focusing teacher, Sandy Jami, amazing human being, she always tells me that we can't grow without each other. We need each other for growth. And if I can't see myself in you and, and what I'm not in you, I have no possibility of really changing or being in a different way. And the last thing I'll say is I'm such a firm believer that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. I'm such a believer in that. Mm. And so that's why I go to the green room. I hang out with you. I hang out with Russ and Catherine. I hang out with James. I hang out with a lot of mentors and teachers who I consider thought leaders. I spend time with them because I want to be more like them. And I have had to remove a lot of people from my life because I'm not in a space where I can be of any use to them. And I have lost the ability to learn from them meaningfully, you know, meaningfully. So. Yeah. yeah. I think that just being fully transparent that, you know, I'm also 49. It's this midlife journey. You know, my, my kids are Mm -hmm. growing up and launching and, I'm shifting into work that uh, my heart is really calling me into. And it's Mm -hmm. just so interesting to see that the people and the groups that I have been surrounding myself between the green room and I have this wonderful Myers-Briggs typology community and I have this wonderful resonant Mm -hmm. healing community and nonviolent communication Mm -hmm. and a diamond group. It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you put yourself into this soup mix and Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. Um, the feedback that I received today that I'm just taking in and working with is that there's this fear that as I'm moving in and sort of announcing moving into doing consciousness work with people, that mm-hmm. that turns some patients off and that they, you know, may not want to be in a practice where they feel like looking honestly at situations in their lives and habits. And we run a weight management community and really help people with craving and addiction and things like this. There's something really Mm -hmm. scary about turning up the honesty and the transparency. And it's just been really interesting for me to come from this community where everybody Mm -hmm. is looking at trauma, is wanting to grow, is really integrating that and Mm -hmm. realizing that a lot of the world isn't interested in that right now. And so how yeah. do you as this systems work? I'm so curious. How mm-hmm. how do you interface those two? And I hear you're building an intentional community right now, so it sounds like mm-hmm. you're building the grounds that are going to attract these types of thinkers. But 
But I'm just curious, have you always been working with these types of people or have there been times in your life where it did feel like the consciousness was not matching up? Like people were just seeing things from very different lenses and what were some of your strategies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a really good inquiry. I, I want to take just a step back and say, I've also noticed a, a change in you in, in over your sabbatical because, you know, we've been in touch through the green room for over for a couple of years now. And yeah. um yeah, I definitely notice an activation and a softening and an opening and all of those things, um, which which, which is great. And and also, uh, I can imagine it's a bit you know scary too, right? It gets real when we when we have more of a of a position and an offering and a, a kind of feeling around those um, that they matter. Um, in terms of the clients, I, I I you can't serve everyone. I I think that really is important, and it's really good. That, that that is the case you know it's like uh margaret wheatley's islands of sanity you're creating an island of sanity for a type of person that i believe will really you know support and love what you're doing i think of um you know i remember i told you a couple of weeks ago is that true, true north health doing a three three week water fast and that is an amazing organization they're a, a research institution a non-profit they do water fasting, amongst other things. They are much more holistic. A lot of their doctors are NDs, um, so naturopaths. Very, very skilled. Um, they are quite holistic, and they do use that language. And it's not for everyone, and they're very clear that it's not for everyone. But the people that it is for get amazing, amazing results. You know, cancer remissions, autoimmune disease remissions. I mean, their research is just out of the out of the you know blowing out of the water. They're working with Mayo Clinic and. They're publishing in journals. And so this is an organization that's 30 years old that has been true to course for 30 years and has a very solid following. They have more demand than capacity. So I think, I I imagine, I see that you could be doing the same thing. Um, And that, yes, that doesn't include everyone and that's fine. Um, Yeah. The interesting thing for me is I have been doing this, but on a very small scale. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is where I think we look at how do I want to use my energy? And Mm -hmm. what I realize is that I am a healer. I don't really enjoy running businesses. I want to have other people run the Mm -hmm. business. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this is where we take really honest Mm -hmm. looks at ourselves. And, you know, living the way that I've lived when my whole world is within five miles of my home, you know, back and forth to work while Mm -hmm. I've raised four kids suited me to just run this very small organization with four employees. But as you Mm -hmm. enter phases of growth, like there's different skills that you have to be conscious Mm -hmm. of. And to just say, what is my passion, purpose, mission? Where do I feel Mm -hmm. like my energy is being called towards? And I really do believe that when we're not in alignment, that this Mm -hmm. is where we start to see these tension points. And I think that Mm -hmm. even the suffering that's going on amongst the people in the office right now is really there to help everybody get clarity around why we're here and what we're doing and for everybody Mm -hmm. to make the decisions that they need to make about what's going to work and what's not going to work and that's very personal for everyone absolutely you know a really useful tool for this uh car that you probably know about um but i'll name it anyway is the ikigai it's a Japanese term for reason for being, um, reason for, for being. Um, it's got a beautiful, if you do a web search for it, it's got a beautiful image, it's a flower. And it is what you're good at, what the world needs, what you can get paid for, and what you love doing. 
And so um, it's an amazing tool to write, to, to kind of journal around because, and I was just thinking, you know, maybe your team could each do an Ikigai and then you could have a chat about that because it might really show you, you know, kind of maybe some unconscious biases that some of you might have towards each other about what you think the other person, you know, what sets them free, what brings them alive. But it's a great tool for teams because you you get to know each other on a very different level um, from a very different lens. So, yeah. And I'll, I'll answer the systems question you asked as well, which is, I think the way that I was socialized as a kid, my mom was a businesswoman, very successful businesswoman, um, and also always had charities. I think she had more charities than businesses over her years. So it it was kind of really instilled in me at a young age that anything I do needs to be useful to other people. Um, and the seven, the seven obviously really helps with that. Though. So with systemic change, like, for example, when I did my, my PCC at New Ventures West, the integral coaching, um, when I graduated, the first question I had was, that was amazing. How do I get this to everyone? Mm. And so that's how I am naturally inclined to think. How do I get this to everyone? And so that's why it's systemic. Because when you're working at a systemic level, you're not you know, taking care of a school or a, a ministry. You're looking at the entire education system, maybe of a region. And then you're bringing together all the actors, right? Government, civil society, private sector. Um, public sector, academia, youth, uh, entrepreneurs, innovators, and you're creating the conditions for all of these people to radically shake something up and then implement through different projects. Um, and eventually you come up with some really cool policy interventions and changes. It could be something like a standard that gets put into an industry that makes it safe for everyone to work in that industry. And there's a lot of very cool organizations doing systemic change work. And one of the one of the ones I have a big crush on in, in the U.S., is called co-creative. Um, I just love their work. They, they are the reason that our mobile phones are made with much less damaging uh, processes because they literally got Apple and Samsung and the really big tech companies to stand in front of the factory workers that were suffering from the uh, runoff of the, you know, the waste processes and the chemicals. And that overnight, they got assistance change across the entire electronics industry for devices going towards Europe or the or the US, right? So I love that kind of work because we're not talking about supporting one or two people. We're talking about sometimes supporting millions of people. Uh, working at that level is incredibly difficult because there's such a big difference between complex systems and complicated systems. So a complicated system is what you get in you know a lot of smaller organizations or simpler organizations. You can predict quite far into the future, like a, a rocket. Is a, is a complicated system. It is a really big challenge, but you break it down into small parts and you can predict quite successfully what's going to happen. With a complex system, you have no ability to predict into the future. You just don't. You know, a, a great example is in Yellowstone, they reintroduced wolves and it ended up changing the rivers in Yellowstone wow. because the wolves, ate, uh, yeah, the wolves ate the deer, so the deer stayed away from the riverbanks. They didn't want to be exposed, so the riverbanks grew trees. The trees solid, solidified the banks suddenly you've got very strong rivers that are changing shape um, in response to the wars. You could never predict that that was going to happen before. This sounds like the human psyche too, that like, you know, you have oh, yeah. this baby. We are living systems. Yeah, we are living Absolutely. systems. And like, you can never predict mm -hmm. what is this organism? What mm -hmm. are all the manifestations and permutations that we're going to see over a lifespan? And how's the story going to yeah. end? You know, and Absolutely. I just love this vision that we're all you know, writing our current page and, you know, living mm -hmm. this life. And 
there was something that always resonated with me about Stephen Covey, you know, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly mm-hmm. Effective People. Yeah. And, you know, he said, begin with the end in mind. And, you know, what mm-hmm. is it that I want to be known for? What is it that I hope people mm-hmm. say about me? Like, what is it that mm-hmm. matters and towards what am I orienting myself? So I think yeah. that for so many individuals, there can be moments in time where we feel a little stuck and we feel a little confused and stuff is coming up. And I just think this beautiful opportunity that we have to get quiet and really turn in to the body and the heart. And I call it the snow globe of quieting the mind. Mm -hmm. And then just Mm -hmm. seeing these emergent possibilities that heretofore, Mm -hmm. like we didn't really have connection with. So that just all came up with me about how each human is like its own little solar system or universe. And we've got just all of these happening everywhere. And when we think about the interconnection and the energy it's pretty mind-blowing and kind of exciting to think about. Yeah, I, my, my uh, observation is that it's also pretty unoriginal. It's a microcosm with a macrocosm, and it's all the same game. It's all the same dance. Yep. Internally, the conversation that you're having with your team um, outside is the same conversation internally with the parts that we have. You know, it yeah. is the same conversations. And everything that's happening inside is happening outside. You know, with systemic change... The beautiful thing about it is you're working with many different actors mm. internally that would be many different parts towards a mission which requires a lot of self-leadership and so that that really is where this is powerful you know this is why i love the enneagram so much it is such an amazing tool for self-leadership because you can stand up as self in presence in the middle of your constellation of parts and say i'm here now mm. and this is what i want to do and it's done with so much respect and love and care the way that a good leader should do it externally and so it really is developing Mm. like like you know what was a time Mm. where you use because when i say you use the enneagram i have sort of an abstract Uh idea of what you mean but Mm. i know it would be helpful Mm -hmm. for me and i assume listeners like do you have a case study of either yourself or somebody you've worked with where this was sort of the problem or the situation that was going on and this is how i use the enneagram to work with the different parts that were active. And this is what happened. I think that'd be really interesting if anything's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can think of one now. So a um, client of mine in a very large construction company, multinational, you know, Fortune 500 company. He's a senior leader. Um, he's an eight, very powerful guy. Um, powerful when he's not even trying to be powerful, which is often not a good thing for eights because a lot of damage happens in that. And so the coaching focused around uh, conflict resolution, learning how to communicate better, learning how to buy people, buy, you know, buy people in more. So kind of moving from very much leading in front to more of a ser- servant leader position. What was fascinating was that the resistance that they were experiencing within their team was for me the same resistance that they were experiencing internally with regards to understanding their true nature as a very intuitive being and not a fully cognitive leader that they, you know, they work in tech, they're, you know, they're managing big tech products globally. And so very cognitive and almost kind of quieting down the voice of it a year later. So we usually, I work with people for six months, but you know, if there's a really big behavior change that needs to happen, it can take a year. A year later, this guy, when I do the 360, it it was just, I couldn't even recognize that the language they were using about this person was 180 degrees what it was previously and it was entirely describing 
pretty much the perfect servant leader. Mm. Um, coaching team members, making a lot more time for the team, making sure that everyone's voice is heard, especially the voices that are quieter or that need more time to be heard, need different circumstances to be heard. Doing little things like meeting with certain people in the meeting beforehand so that he could brief them so that they would be able to move at the same speed as everyone else during the meeting, right? Mm. Little things like that that absolutely transform the quality of the experience of working for this leader simply because he had the ability to recognize that the internal friction that he was creating by denying his nature, by forcing himself to be something that he wasn't, was exactly what he was doing in his team, a microcosm of the macrocosm, right? And so mm. this is why I love integral coaching, because integral coaching, a client will come to me and say, oh, you know, I need better time management, or, oh my God, I'm, you know, I've got this difficult person on my team, I don't know what to do with them. And it's very nice that they tell me that, but that's not what I'm going to be coaching them on at all. I'm going to look at them through the Enneagram. I'm going to look at them through integral theory. I'm going to look at them through adult development lenses and really look at them as a, a you know, kind of like a 3D sonogram of them, getting a three-dimensional image. And that's when the fun can start because then when you start to shift things at that way deeper being level, then all the surface stuff completely changes. And so what they came to as a problem for the coaching ended up not being at all what they were exploring as a leader and has now allowed them to do so much more in the organization. I mean, literally almost scale themselves in the organization because they're no longer trying to do it themselves. They're delegating effectively. They know how to hand off. They know how to create next-gen leaders. So they're creating next-gen leaders, which means that they can just sit back and watch people do the, do the work uh, and not need to micromanage at all. And the same thing internally, not need to micromanage. Mm. bow to whatever is coming up in the experience, welcome it in and use it constructively as a force of energy, as opposed to using all the energy he has, just resisting who he is and resisting what his team wants. You know, So it was, I think that's a, that's a really, uh, for me, a very personal and good example, I think, of how the systemic work is also what we're doing individually too. I mean, that's what leadership is, right? Leadership for me is relationship. It is relationship. That's it. Absolutely. I 100% agree. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. And really, that's what we're doing is learning how to be good stewards of relationships with ourselves and others. And so Mm -hmm. I love just thinking of relationship as a spiritual practice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'll say one more thing, uh, Cara, which I I feel is important here. I did a lot of systemic level collaborations during the Arab Spring and all of that stuff. And what I came out of it understanding is that collaboration is so incredibly difficult. It is so difficult when you're actually collaborating properly. You're not waiting to take your turn and say what you have been meaning to say for the last 10 minutes. You're listening generatively. You're taking the risk of stepping into a space where you might be wrong or your questions, your assumptions might. That is terrifyingly difficult work. And it really does require a lot of skill to be able to collaborate effectively to be able to have hard conversations and not just give in to consensus, but to really move beyond consensus to synergy requires people that have so much trust between them that they can have incredibly difficult conversations and not make it about them at all. It's about the work. It's not about them. Mm. And that kind of work is really high level. And I see it in very, very few um, leaders. And it's so difficult that I don't want to do that work anymore. So <laughs> my my theory of change has, has changed. I now try to multiply impact by working through leaders and not by trying to run my own organizations. That for me is where I can be most effective because these people are supporting millions of beneficiaries or they have 20 million customers. You know, And if I can 
make a change in the way things are done with them, that has ripple effects, you know, way out there. But it doesn't require me to be in the middle of all that action, kind of literally throwing my life on the line anymore. I, I'm so done with that. Like my self price is nowhere near as low as it was. So that kind of behavior is way, way further away from me than it would have been at one point. Yeah. I mean, I'm really deeply resonating with what you're saying. I mean, at the beginning of the conversation, mm -hmm. I think I even said, yeah, I'm just realizing that mm -hmm. I don't want to be the one like running that organization and managing mm -hmm. all these collaborative pieces that I know don't have the skill set that I wish that they had, that we don't have common language around, oh, I'm noticing that I'm having a reaction. You know, I kind of shut down a little bit when I heard you say blah, 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 because I noticed mm -hmm. that I'm mm -hmm. feeling this because I'm really wanting us to have more of that. And so, okay, I'm just wondering, like, can we take a pause? You know, it's really hard yeah. when you can't, when feelings aren't okay to bring up, you know, it's tough yeah. Yeah. because if we can't be with our own emotional experience, how can I possibly be with yours? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And when those Absolutely. leaders come to you, there's a part of them that really, really wants that safe holding environment that I sense that you're able to provide and that I love to provide for the people that I work with. And I just see mm -hmm. each of us from the green room out there as these little nodes creating little bubbles of safety because we're there yeah. holding our tough emotions with each other and then going mm -hmm. out into the world and it was really interesting. I had a patient today and she told me that she really appreciated what a great listener that I am, which actually made me laugh wow. a little bit because if you're my friend, <laughs> like outside of the world, <laughs> I, I talk a lot. <laughs> and even the people who have listened to my <laughs> podcast, you know, this is an edge. You know, I think that we can constantly improve how we listen, <laughs> especially as an assertive type. It was just so interesting because it's like when I'm at work and when I'm on, it's like, oh yeah, I'm conscious, I'm present. I'm not wrapped mm -hmm. up in my stuff as much. And it's so interesting to watch that then when we leave wherever mm -hmm. it is we're doing our job, whether that's with our intimate partner, our kids, our friends, our family, it's like, ooh, there's like this relaxation, which is really fun and joyful. And then, of course, yeah, now we bump against each other. Or I'm wanting more of this. You're wanting more of that. And if we develop this ability to bump up against each other, actually get greater intimacy through conflict, I think that that's mm -hmm. where the real juice actually starts to emerge. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So is this what's going to happen in your intentional community? Tell us about where you're living right now and what you're building. Oh cool. oh, cool. Yeah, it's um, so we moved from downtown DC, a couple of miles north of the White House, um, in the middle of all the action, which I love. DC is an amazing city. I love that city. Very much reminds me of Amsterdam. To Shenandoah, in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. Um, we live in a town of about 200 people. It's very rural. Um, we have a small house uh, in a big forest, about 24 acres of uh, forest. And it has been a meditation center for 30 years and when we came to when we were house shopping we are our realtor happens to be a monk who wrote a book on meditation who happens to have also done an, a bitcoin initial coin offering for 30 million so wow. very very <laughs> fascinating character yeah. yeah and embroiled in all sorts of international intrigue um 
and just a lovely guy. And this was the, on the first day that we went house hunting, we saw this place with him. And we saw all these cool things around the house. We were like, what is this place? This is a, these are the kind of books we would read. This is the kind of stuff we would have. And it turned out that she was a meditation teacher for 30 years. Uh, she's a shaman, uh, amongst other things. Very, just an incredible human being. And we had wanted to buy the place to set up a meditation retreat because we, you know, my wife and I graduated from the meditation, mindfulness meditation teacher certification program with uh, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brack. Two years one of the most intense experiences we've been through. So anyway, we found this beautiful piece of land. We fell in love with it. And now we want, we are basically converting it into an eco-village over time. So mm-hmm. that's what an intentional community is. So we'll be building the place through workshops. Um, we're going to be building a kitchen garden in the next few months. Um, and so people will pay to learn how to build a kitchen garden whilst actually building it for us. Um, awesome. And they pay... They don't, we don't get the money. The money goes towards the fees for the um, the Permaculture Institute that will be running the workshop. Um, but the idea is you build the village through workshops so that people feel that they've contributed with their hands. Um, the finished product will have a geodome, lots of tiny houses, uh, tiny homes everywhere. We've got an airstream at the moment. There'll be a lot of meditation offerings. But what we really want to do is we want to run a thriving in complexity series for, for leaders. Um, cohorts of 20 people, year-long program that takes people from the very cognitive, all the important leadership stuff, um, all the way through to the concept of awe. And that's A-W-E. Um, mm. It's quite hard to say in British, English, or American. But um, yeah, awe. Like we want to take leaders to awe, not to being more efficient or more effective. That's going to happen anyway. Not to being more happy and yeah, all of that. And is there something that lies beyond the things that they've explored before that is so scary and exciting to touch that it might really be where their vocation lives? It might really be where the next version of themselves lives. That's really what we want to get people to. Mm. Um, so that would be a one-year program. And so then the whole ecosystem around that, that's the, the Qigong and the yoga and the meditation and the coaching, that will all be people from the area and further afield that will be part of this intentional community that overlaps physically in space, but also not physically in space. It could be that parts of our community are, you know, we have people in Germany, we have people in Haiti, we have people, my God, in every country you can imagine that are change makers doing cool work that should be doing this kind of thing locally. So we are like a global community, but we also are very local um, at the same time. Yeah, and one of those communities, for example, I'll, I'll give a shout out to is the Weaving Lab. Weaving Lab is such a cool organization. It is an international organization of systems change leaders that are focused on shifting education uh, and taking it to completely new places. And How so are they shifting just it? the quality. Oh my God. In so, in so many different contexts in so many different ways, we're talking globally, you know, people that are, for example, um, Bhutan is completely revamping its education system. You know, that they developed the global happiness index which is in contrast to the global GDP and you know global domestic product. So most countries are measured by their GDP in terms of how successful the country is. And Bhutan's measurement is about global happiness. Mm. So you know that's way cooler. And the whole education, like they, the way they handled the pandemic was, let's make sure everything, everyone has everything they need to be okay in the middle of this. Mm. And as a result, they, they are, their cases were so minimal. It, they, just the way they handled it was poetry. There's so much for the world to learn from these countries, but they don't have the kind of dominant Western uh, narrative. 
Yeah, I'm feeling mm-hmm. sad that I didn't hear anything about it because the news was constantly filled with what a mess it was here in the United States with the way things were being yeah. navigated and there was so much fear, terror, alarm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the energetic tone of the emotions in this mm-hmm. country that global happiness score was very low, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. And yeah. to hear that here's this country that was actually doing this radical thing of how about we just make mm-hmm. sure people have what they need? And it's yeah. so simple. And yet mm-hmm. we seem to really struggle with that. Yeah, I find cultural integration one of the sexiest things imaginable. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many practices that are thousands of years old that have worked incredibly well to support people in managing trauma and stress and to be well that are completely forgotten about because they are not part of the kind of dominant narrative. And so I find it so cool when we can rediscover or learn how other people, you know, for example, I'll tell you one one last thing that I find amazing. It's a tribe in Africa. I can't remember its name. Um, Tara Brack has mentioned it a few times. When someone in the tribe offends, when they do something wrong, like stealing, the whole tribe stands around them and they remind them of all the beautiful things they've ever done since they were a kid. And that's how they deal punishment. It's not punitive. It's not um, criticizing in any way. It's just remembering who you really are. And I think there's so much for us to learn from that in the West. Uh, And I think there are some of those learnings already happening. There's countries in Scandinavia that are focusing on integration, little countries like Malta focusing on integration. Crime rates have gone so low that they're closing prisons at this point. Wow. So there's a lot to learn from how different people, uh, different cultures have, have, have learned to thrive that I think is so valuable that we bring into the mainstream. Well, you've really excited me, Adam. I mean, I have lived in the United <laughs> States my whole life. I do not have this global experience that you have. And just in this short conversation, you've really opened up my mind and my heart and my curiosity to the way that other countries are driving these changes. So I just want to express a ton of gratitude. And I know that you have a few offerings that the community may want to plug into that I can put in the show notes. Tell us about the offerings that you have coming up and people who are excited how they might be able to work with you. Great. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Cara. Um, First offering through the Integral Impact Institute is uh, leadership assessment. So I'm happy for your listeners to kind of connect with me. You can put that in the show notes and I'll offer them... um, you know, uh, uh, leadership assessments to the point that I can physically handle the capacity. Um, The second is um, for my systems change organization, we're just about to release um, some video modules on leading in complexity. So that's something that I can open up to a few people uh, as a sneak peek before we actually launch the course live. And then the third offering is once we're up and running with the retreat center, we will be having a uh, mindfulness for change makers series that will be free to drop into online and at some point in person here and happy for your listeners to be involved in all of that. Oh, and there's one last thing. I will be interviewing systems leaders for a podcast that I'm putting together. Um, Hopefully you can give me all of your notes on that. And these are people that are doing the very work that we've been talking about. And I think that they have stories that are amazing. And I think it's so important at this day and age that we hear about all the amazing change makers and the work they're doing. It's so much cooler than all the doom and gloom that the media is trying to sell us. Um, there are some incredible people and organizations that are doing amazing things that just make being alive an absolute joy. So yeah, really excited to share that with everyone. I love that. I think it was Mr. Rogers who said, 
look for all the people that are, you know, being nice, like doing good, like there's so much of that mm. out there. And yet our attention constantly goes to the problems, which of course are there. But mm -hmm. where can, where is our circle of influence? What is it that we can do? Mm -hmm. Where can we lean in to start creating this world that we want to see? So I just want to express a ton of gratitude. We'll make sure that all of that mm -hmm. information is in the show notes. I hope that we continue to grow and learn and work together. And I can't wait to hear your podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Carl. What a treat it's been to hang out with you. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at social at karenansmd.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenansmd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes.